Good morning. You know, I want to comment on our our worship time just a minute. Uh, some of the songs that we sing uh, are extremely useful in ushering us into the presence of the Lord. Okay? But it's always important to remember is that's their purpose. And then there comes a time that too many words become distractions. There's t- it's easy sometimes to get focused on the word, on the words, and not get lost in the presence of the Father because you keep coming back to the words. I think there is a higher praise that comes from within that sometimes words can't describe or at the very least a very minimal words describe it. I think that's why the being circle the throne for eternity and say one word over and 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 over. Holy, holy, holy. They don't need a script. Because what they're doing is coming out of here and their awareness of God's presence, and it just overshadows anything externally. Okay? Now, it's easy to get into that trap. Well, we, we sang that song. We worship. Well, you might have sang it, but you may not have worshiped. Just because you sing it doesn't mean you've worshipped. Okay? Worship takes place in the presence of the Father. You can sing a song anywhere, anytime. But they are good tools, if you will, to help bring us into his presence. And what happened today is words didn't matter because the Father was real. And I want to encourage that to you, that you don't always have to sing the words. You know, there may be words that come up inside of you that aren't on the board. Go for it. Go for it. Like the guy prophesied in that meeting, if you don't repent, God's going to ride Michelob on your wall. Well, that was a little off. Ichabod's what he meant. Okay? Sometimes words just... You know, I, I find the best time, my personal best time in the Lord, when there's nothing. I'm not saying nothing. And you know what? Sometimes he's not even saying anything. But it's like being in the presence of somebody that you know is glad you're there. And you just want to soak it in and absorb it. So I want to encourage what happened today. And we've talked about this a little bit in the past. But I, I honestly believe that's a higher expression of praise. I think we got to say sometime we enter his courts with words, enter his gates with words, and then we enter his courts with silence, just praise and blessing him for who he is. And so just enjoy that. You know, when that comes and that happens, don't just say, okay, they're through singing. That's not the point. The point is there may be something there to take us higher 
into his presence. John? Yeah. Come on. Stay up here where they can hear you. And if I'm out of order, just tell me, shut up and sit down, John, and I will. <laughs> I just felt like today God was impressing on me. And I think this is more for the men because we're less demonstrative than the ladies are. But from my personal experience, and I hope some of you guys can relate to this, I came from a Baptist background. So if you're sitting and you're reading your three or singing your three hymns while you're sitting there, and you go like this, oh, you don't do that in a Baptist church. But what it does for me, it's a breakthrough. It's me being obedient to the Holy Spirit. It's me saying, yes, Lord, amen, Lord. I love you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. This is a reflection of the condition of my heart. If I'm just sitting there like this, maybe you're supposed to, but not for me. I'm supposed to demonstrate my love for him. You don't have to say anything, but demonstrate. Demonstrate your love for him. If you can't say the words, you don't want to sing. Doing just this can be a huge breakthrough for men. So. I hope that speaks to somebody. That's right. That's good. You know, that, that picture of this came from the fulfillment whenever the priest would make an offering in the Passover. He had what he called a wave offering. And he would bring that offering before the Lord, and he would wave it. This is what I have to offer. I'm offering this to appease the Lord. Well, now it's with empty hands that we come and say, we got nothing. It's all you. It's all you, Father. And the other thing I think is an expression of is it's just an expression of surrender. I give up. I give up. I surrender to you to do whatever you want to do. Okay? So there's lots of expressions and, and worship typically took an expression. It just typically did. If you look at the Old Testament, you know, there were always expressions of worship, but they were expressions. They were worship. So just ask the Lord what he wants to do in you, and don't limit him to what he wants to do. Scott? Yeah. Yeah. When you, when your grandkid likes you and they want to be with you or they want to mint. <laughs> that's the posture, you know. Now we think it's because we're so great grandparents, you know, but they want to mint, you know, but they want to be with you. They want to be held by you. Okay. All right. Uh, take your Bible and we have been talking about integrity. And I'm, I had not planned on going here with this up until this week. And, uh, I just feel like I need to, to touch on it just for a few minutes. We, the understanding we had of integrity is that integrity means wholeness, means integer, it means one. And, uh, we learned over the last couple of weeks that God is the only thing in the universe that has integrity. He is the only one in the universe that is whole. When sin came, it fractured that wholeness that was there. Now there's all these other purposes, these all these other 
reasons for existence. There's all these other self-preservation, self-promotion, self-identification that now take place in our heart because we've lost our integrity. But God has never lost his integrity. He is whole from the very beginning. From before there ever was a beginning, God was whole. He was complete. And now because sin has fractured the universe, we've discovered that God's heart is to come and restore, to make whole again everything into Christ, to bring a wholeness back to our heart and to our, our, our earth and to the world and to the universe. And that's his desire. There's nothing we can do about global warming. Only God's going to restore the universe to what it's supposed to be, and he's reserved that for himself. And so we just wanted I wanted you to see that integrity is not something we create on our own, but it is something that God works in us when he comes to live in us. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, let's go back there. I want to show you something here, and I want to just address an issue that I think comes up when you begin to talk about this. In Ephesians chapter 1, and John's right, uh, Ephesians and Colossians are just two of my favorite books uh, because of what they talk about. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us. Now, I want you to look in here at how much of this description is of what God has done, not what we have done, but in what he has done. And he says, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy, set apart to him, and blameless, without blemish, before him. That was his heart for us, that we be whole. He chose us that we might become whole. He says in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Nothing acted upon God and caused him to choose us. God didn't look at us and say, oh, I like him, I'm going to choose him. He chose us according to the kind intention of his will. Let me paraphrase that. That's what he wanted to do. He did that because he wanted to. Because his heart was to restore what sin had broken. Not just in us, but in the universe, in the earth. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. When God does it, his grace is glorified. His grace is magnified whenever God accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he proposed in Jesus with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. And there we find God's purpose. God's purpose is to bring everything that is, 
everything that is in rebellion, everything that is in rejection, everything that is fractured, everything that is broken, everything that is part back into a whole in order for this whole to be an expression of him who is whole, an expression of his glory. A fractured earth cannot reveal the glory of God. It alludes to it. It hints to it. We go out in the mountains. We go out on the beach, and we go out on the in the desert. We look at all this stuff, and we say, wow, the glory of God. Well, just think about what it looked like before sin entered the world. It's fractured. It groans to be restored. And God's purpose is to restore all of that back under Christ into his wholeness. And that's his purpose, to establish integrity in the earth. And when he comes to live in us, he comes to establish integrity in us, to make us whole before him, to fulfill that purpose to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, look in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, begin in verse uh, 15. You you just get lost in Colossians when you read about, in fact, the, the note on the side says the incomparable Christ is what he's talking about here. Verse 15, he, Christ, is the invisible, is the image of the invisible God. Christ was whole. He was the physical image of an invisible God. How could he do that? Because he was whole. He was integrity. He was complete. He needed nothing outside of himself to, to exist in fullness because he was full of the Father and to fulfill his purpose. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. For him. Why was the earth created? For him. The earth was created to be an expression of his wholeness, of his glory, of his awesomeness. It was created for him. Why were we created? We were created for him. We were not created for ourselves. We were created for him. Our life only became fractured when we chose to live for ourselves, to exist for ourselves. And that's been the curse of man ever since Adam. He says he is before him. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Here we see his purpose revealed. That everything created, that Christ may come to have first place in everything. I just want to read, for it was the Father's good pleasure. It was the will of the Father. It was his desire that all the fullness to dwell in him. 
and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, were the things on earth or things in heaven. Here he reveals that purpose again, that he, that everything, that Christ may come to have first place in everything that exists. Okay? Because it was all created for him. Now, most of us did not have that understanding when we first came to know Christ. Most of us did not have that perspective when we were being introduced to Jesus. Most of us were not presented with the understanding that says, let me explain this to you. If you're going to come to Christ, everything that you are, everything that you hope to be, everything that exists about you must be surrendered to his purpose, to his will, and to his design. Most of us were never told that. For many of us, we were told all you have to do is pray the sinner's prayer. All you have to do is repeat after me. All you have to do is say these words. All you have to do is follow this plan. All you have to do is let him forgive you of your sin. And then you're going to get to go to heaven. Till then, do the best you can. In fact, just tie a knot in the rope and hang on. As a matter of fact, many of us were led to believe that Christ now came is coming to live in our heart to help us be successful. We have these plans. We have these dreams. We have the desires. And I cannot get them fulfilled. And Jesus is going to come in my heart and let me realize all of the things that I have dreamed about, all of the things I've ever wanted, all of the things I've ever desired. He has come to fulfill everything that I want. He is here to serve me to serve my purpose, to serve my goals, to make me happy, and then he's going to take me to heaven. That's the payoff. And many of us, that was our introduction to Christ. That was what we were anticipating. That is what we were expecting. And all of a sudden a conflict arose. We said, yes, listen, I never met an atheist that wanted to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. All I got to do is say these words. Hey, I'm in. Put me down. But all of a sudden, there's a conflict that rises. Because if, perchance, Christ did come into our heart, And do you understand he's not obligated to do so? He's not waiting there wringing his hands, waiting on us to ask him in our heart. He's not roaming around looking for something to do, waiting on us to ask him to come in our heart. He is not obligated at all. 
in John, it says there were some people that saw the miracles that Jesus did, and they committed themselves to him. But it says, on his part, he did not commit himself to them because he knew the hearts of all men, and he knew their heart. You see, a covenant is two parts. For a covenant to take place, both parties have a part. When we come into a covenant with Christ, his part is he died, he rose, he lives, he abides, he works, he heals, he performs, he expresses, he obeys, he does all of that, and he has done everything to provide salvation for us. That's his part. Our part is we surrender to that. We accept that. We receive that. We can't add to it. We don't deserve it. We don't make it. But just because we have this expectation of Christ coming and we say those words does not necessarily mean he is obligated to come. He knows our heart. And he knows that if our heart is to use him and to manipulate him to get what we want, he's not obligated to come. He's looking for an humble heart. So most of us never had this concept. But pretty soon... The concept is entered into our life because here's God working in our heart to fulfill his purpose, to fulfill his plan, and here we are trying to get God to do what we want him to do to fulfill our plans and our purpose. And for many of us, there comes this point in our in our walk where we do ultimately, we realize that Jesus is Lord. That means he is in control. That means he is boss. That means he is the, the word that he used here when he says that Christ might come to have first place in everything. The word I believe in the King James is that Christ might come to have preeminence. That means there's nobody above him. There's no will above him. There's no view above him. There's no purpose above him. Everything comes into subjection to him. And so we come to this place in our life where we surrender to him. We say, Lord, you just take it all. You be everything to me, thinking that's an add-on to our salvation. But if we never did that in the first place, that's where we met God. That's where the covenant became reality in our heart. Here's the thing. God comes in in our heart, and he begins to work this in us. He begins to reveal things to us. He begins to show us that our plan was our plan and that his plan is his plan. And he shows us how awesome he is, and we come to the place of surrender. Well, how in the world do you ever get saved? Here's the simplest way I know. I surrender everything that I know about myself to everything that I know about him at that point in time. Now, that presupposes two things. One, I'm going to learn more about him. Just right now, this is all I know about him, but I'm giving myself, all of I know about myself, I'm going to learn more about myself. But at this point in time, this is what I know about myself. This is what I know about him. And I am surrendering everything that I know of myself to everything that I know of him. And then God shows us more about ourselves. And then he shows us more about him. What's my posture to be? I surrender it to you. I surrender to you. This is yours. 
You've shown me more about me. I never know everything about him. We never know everything about ourselves. That's not the point. The point is, do we surrender what we know about ourselves? Do we surrender what we know about him? That he might come to have first place in everything. Everything. Remember what he said, Jesus, the guy came up and asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of all? Remember what he said? Love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. You know what that word all means? Whole. Whole. Well, I only know this much of my heart. That's the whole that you know. What am I going to do with it? I surrender it to him. I don't know much about him. This is the whole of him. I surrender it to him. I love him with my whole heart. I love him with all that I know of my heart. And if he reveals more of my heart to me, I surrender that to him. This is the foundation for integrity to ever be established in my life. That's where it starts. It's surrendering to him. That he might come to have first place in everything. No longer is my life compartmentalized. I surrender to him everything. He doesn't come to create a department and just be the head of that department. He comes to establish wholeness. He can't be anything except what he is. He is whole. He is complete. And when he comes to live in my heart, he comes as wholeness, as integrity, to establish integrity in me. My posture at that point is to be I surrender. I just surrender. There's no religious compartment in our life that he's the head of. And integrity is absolutely essential to live in the awareness of the presence of God. Look with me in Psalms 15. Psalms 15. He says, O Lord... Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Who can stay in your presence, Lord? Who can abide and live in the awareness of your love for us? Now, let me explain something to you. God is love. He is holy. He is pure. He is good. But to expect him to impart those things to us apart from himself We do err. And he knows that the only way we can ever experience wholeness and joy and peace and love is when his purpose is established in our life. How can I abide in the presence of God? How can I live in the awareness of him? Here's what he says. He who walks with integrity. Integrity is the condition of my heart that allows me to be aware of the presence of God on a daily basis, to remain in that presence, to abide in that presence, to know of his love for me, to know of his care for me. It comes from integrity being established in my heart. And the beginning of integrity being established in me is to surrender to him. We err when we buy into the notion that God just exists to give us what we want, and to make us happy, and to serve us at our pleasure. God is committed to his purpose 
of establishing integrity. That Christ might come to have first place in everything. All right? Let's break that down. Does he have first place in my family? Let me clarify that. Does he have first place in your role in your family? You can't control how your partner acts. You can't control, trust me, how your kids act. Okay? But what about your part? Has he come to have first place in your part? Are you responding to your children under Christ's authority? Are you responding to your spouse under Christ's authority? Regardless of what anybody else done, does to us, is he have first place in your family? Does he have first place in your job? When you go to your job, is your objective, is your goal to get as much as you can, to be recognized as much as you can, to be notarized as much as you can, or is your purpose to say, I'm here under Christ's authority to be an expression of him in this context? Jesus didn't come to make us successful according to the world's standard. He came to make us successful by heaven's standard. And by heaven's standard, we are successful. By heaven's standard, success is when I put my head on the pillow at night that I do today what God told me to do. Because he comes to have first place in everything. How about in my private life? Is he have first place? Things that I do when no one's looking. The things that I do when I don't think I'm going to ever get caught. Does he have first place in that? How about in my attitude? Does he have first place in that? Or are there times that I just decide to declare a day of flesh? Okay, this is a national holiday. I'm going to get in the flesh. Back off. Does he come to have first place in everything? In our future, in our plans, has he had first place in our plans? All of this is the beginning of him establishing integrity in our life. It is God who is at work in us to will and to work his good pleasure. What's his good pleasure? That I become whole. That's his good pleasure. And he knows that if he just gives me what I want, wholeness will not be the result. He knows that the only thing will bring result is that Christ come to have first place in everything, in my decisions, in my choices, in my personal life, in his private, in my private life. Now, in his realizing his purpose in the earth and he realizing his purpose in me, there will ultimately be joy. There will be peace. There will be healing. There will be wholeness. But it comes as his will is realized in me and not as I set out to do what I want to do in my heart. His ultimate love for us is expressed in his calling of us to participate with him as he brings wholeness to the earth. That's the ultimate expression of his love. He didn't do that to the angels. 
think about that? He didn't do that for the angels. The cross is not for the angels. Redemption is not for the angels. Redemption is for men and women who become sons and daughters of the Father. That's the ultimate expression of his love for us, that he chose us to participate in the realization of his purpose for us. Now, I don't know. Excuse me a minute. My hearing aid is beeping. That means the battery is low and it won't quit till I change it. <clears throat> Before, can you hear me now? <clears throat> Before we move into the what we're going to cover, and I thought we were going to cover today, is what does the life of integrity look like? I wanted to cover this today. I want you to understand that a life of integrity only takes place as we surrender all of the compartments that we know of, of our life to the Father. Now, I don't know why you tried to come to Christ. I don't know why you came to Christ. Some people come to Christ because of fear. Some people come to Christ because they're pressured to do it. I had a guy one time tell me, I just am tired of not fitting in because everybody around him was getting saved. That's not a good reason to come to Christ. To come to Christ is surrender all that we are. I don't know why you came to him, but I just want to encourage you, if you've never come to that place in your life where you say, Father, I just surrender the whole thing to you. I don't know what you have for me, but I know what you have for me is better than what I got for me. Time has proven that. And so I surrender all that I have of myself to all that I know of you. And I choose to cooperate with you as you work integrity in my heart, in my family, in my private life, in my business, in my work, in my neighborhood, in everything I do. I want you to establish your purpose of all things coming into Christ that he might have first place in everything. Does that make any sense? Okay. So I encourage you to just get with the Lord. Now, let me explain something to you. You don't know whether you've done that or not. You you don't really know whether you've done that or not. I remember when I was living in Port Arthur before I met the Lord, I was living with two other guys, and it was just one continuous party. And uh, one of the guys was a Catholic. And I don't even know how this came up, but he came to me one day and he said, uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm the biggest heathen of the bunch, okay? Out of the three, I'm the one that's in more trouble. I'm the one that's partying all the time and, and having the mess in my life. <clears throat> and he comes to me one day because my mother insisted that I still go to church. Okay, on Sunday. I'm not living at home, but I would. She would insist. I want you to come to church, so I would go to church on Sunday morning. But she wouldn't sit by me because I smell so bad. I've been drinking all night, <clears throat> and so I don't know why this this Catholic boy came to me and he says, uh, <clears throat> "What do you guys believe about going to heaven?" Like I'm a theologian, okay? <clears throat> what do you guys believe about going to heaven? <clears throat> and I said, well, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, 
rose from the grave, and died to forgive you of your sins. And he was a good Catholic boy. He said, yes, you're in. That's all you got to do. You got, that's all you got to do is believe that. You just believe that. And you're okay. You're going to heaven. <laughs> he, he said, well, good. Let's go get a beer. <clears throat> and then I met God. And I found out what I had from that point on, I had never had before. And I found out that what I had believed up until that point was a deception. And I had to go back to him and some other guys and say to him, you know what? I was wrong. It's not that way. It is a personal, intimate relationship with Christ where you meet him and surrender to him and his will and his purpose. He said, okay. That was it. Well, somewhere between there and here, this guy met God. And you see on Facebook today, post some things, some things that he posts because he came to realize, I don't know what you were told or what you were led to believe when you met the Lord, but if you would have asked me during those 21 year period or from the time I, I walked the aisle when I was eight till I was 21, if you'd have asked me if I was going to heaven, I'd say, yeah, yeah, I'm going, man. I believe. Jesus is God's son. He died on the cross and rose from the grave. I believe. And that's all I thought you had to do. That's what I believed you had to do. But God began to show me how inadequate that was. That wasn't a relationship. It wasn't a surrender. It was just add him to what I was already doing in hopes that he would protect me from the consequences of what I was doing. So I don't know what you believe about your salvation. But I want to tell you this. You don't know where you are with the Father. The only way to go is to go to him and ask him, where am I at with you? Has there ever been that point in my life when I surrendered to your purpose and your will in my life in order to make me whole? Let him show you. Trust me. He wants you to know more than you want to know. But he's the one that knows that. So just ask him, Father, where am I at with you? Have I ever really met you? Have I ever really surrendered you? Or have I surrendered you and now I'm chosen to live my life my way? When did I meet you? Scripture says to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. How do I examine myself? I go to the Father. Father, where am I at with you? Where am I at with you? All right? That might challenge your theology, but that's okay. Go ask the Father about it. Any questions over what I shared this morning? I know we kind of took a side turn, seemingly, but I promise you it all ties into integrity. Because if we start out to try to establish integrity in our life by keeping rules or by keeping a list or by trying to be a better person, we'll never realize integrity. Integrity starts with the surrender of my heart to the Father and his purpose, which is to establish integrity in the earth. Okay? Any questions? Paul. Can you reconcile the difference between what you said 
It's not about uh, uh, believing that Jesus lived, died, and was saved versus faith. Okay. All right. That's a good question. The devil believes that Jesus died. In fact, he was there. He saw it. He was a facilitator of causing it to happen. He thought. He believes it. He acknowledges it. But he is not putting his trust because it's not for him. Faith means that I put my trust, I surrender to him. An anachronism for faith is forsaking all, I trust him. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I trust him. Faith is a surrender. Faith is an action of submission to him who is the head. Mental assent is just I agree with the facts, but it doesn't change my behavior. Faith is a surrender of who I am to the reality that is there, and that allows God to work in my heart to change me into his image. Does that make any difference? There are a lot of illustrations, you know, that we use about that. The guy with the wheelbarrow crossing Niagara Falls on the tight rope, you know, he walks out there with 10 pounds in it and comes back and walks with 20 pounds and comes back. Boy, the crowd's cheering and yelling and hollering, whoop, 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 whoop. That's great. So he asked this one guy, he said, you believe I can do this with 150 pounds? Oh, yeah, you can do it. He said, okay, get in. Nope. See, that's the difference in faith and mental assent. Yeah, you can do it. I'd like to watch you. Get in? I don't think so. Faith is getting in. Faith is surrendering to him. And it is an ongoing process. It is a one-time event with a continual process, like everything else, like repentance. Repentance is a one-time event with a continual process. Salvation is a one-time event with a continual process that we walk in. Okay? Anyone else? Tom. Uh, no, you're not Tom. Hello? There you go. I don't have a question, Micah. I just want to say thank you to you. What Micah gives us is the meat. Okay, there's a verse in the Bible, I don't remember where it is, where it talks about being fed the milk of the word. We are way past milk here, folks. Micah gives us the meat of the word. And I just want to thank you for that, Micah, that you have brought us to the meat of the word and you do it every week. So praise God for you. Thank Thank you. You know, I, I, you know, as a preacher, I, I want to accept responsibility at some level. for the deception that's been perpetrated from the pulpit. Peter Lord was going to write a book one time. It's called Lies Believed and Widely Preached from the Pulpit. Many times in leadership's eagerness to build a group of people, to create a convert, or for whatever reason, we have diminished the gospel to a mental ascent. Just agree. We, pressure been put on people to come down and pray the prayer. Pressure been put on people to say these words. I've done that. I can't tell you how many people I led to the Lord 
I got him to pray a prayer. And a week later, I was at the jail visiting him. I mean, it's just, we have to accept responsibility. We have diluted the gospel. We have made it a man-centered gospel instead of a God-centered gospel. And many of us have been exposed to that. And it's not that, that we didn't do what we were told to do. It's just what we were told to do was incomplete. Okay? Bertha Smith, that great missionary to China, said when she was a little girl, all she ever wanted to do was walk with God. All she ever wanted to do was know God. And every time the church service would start and they'd give an invitation, she's down there. Every time she'd get down there, the preacher would say, just pray this prayer. She'd pray that prayer. He'd say, okay, now you're saved. And she said, I'd get up from there, and i know I was no more saved than a duck. I did everything they said. But she said, one night in my bed, God showed up, and I crawled out of my bed and knelt on the side of it, and I surrendered my life to Christ. And from that point on, I knew I was a child of God. A lot of us have done what we were told. We were just told incorrectly, and we never questioned it. That's on us. Always good to question. Don't believe it just because anybody says it except the Father. Okay?